So um, there's these uh, two guys, these two cowboys out in the desert. Heard this story from a friend of mine I was having dinner with the other night, actually two nights ago. He said, you could use this on Sunday. I said, I will. So um, there's these two cowboys, and they're out in the desert. And, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and they've been traveling for days and days and days. And all of a sudden, they look off in the distance, and they see a tree. And hanging from it are these um, thrashes of, uh, are they called thrashes? They're called rashers. Yes, rashers. I've never heard this term before. But rashers of bacon, right? Strips of bacon stuck together. Rashers of bacon hanging from the branches. And the cowboys look at each other, and they go, oh, my gosh, bacon, love bacon. There's a bacon tree out in the middle of the desert. And as they get closer and closer and closer to it, once they get really close to it, all of a sudden, they're ambushed and shot by these robbers because what they didn't realize that it wasn't a bacon tree it was a hambush I didn't think it would work and I told him that but he said go ahead and try it it's hilarious so I decided to use it but here's a serious question right because you know I'm going to take something silly and make it serious and so here's a serious question how much of our lives your life or my life are lived as if um are lived as if we are in this illusory state of mind where we love bacon and everything looks like a bacon tree. Feels familiar. It feels comfortable. Feels like I'm in control of my life. And all of a sudden we discover it's a handbush. Right? Or maybe the other way. Maybe it's the other way. How much of our lives are driven or motivated by these stories or patterns that we're stuck in and we're always negative or we're always depressed or we're always stressed and we can't seem to get out of this pattern and get a leg up on life and it feels like we're always being ambushed. But in reality, it's a bacon tree. Okay, so I'm apologizing to my vegan friends because actually, <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more I thought this sounds a whole lot better in my head than maybe it does out loud. But I'm hoping that you follow along with what I'm trying to say. There's a wonderful little book that I read years ago. You might have read it too. It was called The Little Prince by uh, Francois de Saint-Exupéry. Back in the 1940s, he published this. He was an aviator for the French uh, resistance during, the, uh, during World War II. But he was also an author and quite well published. And he had, this, he had this little book called The Little Prince, which actually was one of his most popular books and sold millions and millions of copies around the world, re, uh, published and, and translated in over 500 different translations. The idea behind the book is that sometimes we don't see what is really there or what is really possible because we've already defined it and limited its redemptive possibilities or its healing possibilities because of the presumptions we brought to the moment. So in the story, a pilot crashes his plane, and he's in the desert and all alone for days, when all of a sudden, a young boy appears. He calls himself the little prince. He's apparently come from another planet. He's an alien, this little boy. And he says he's traveled the universe, and every planet he travels to, he's looking for something redemptive. He's looking for something interesting that he can learn about humanity or about the universe, what's helping to push the universe forward in helpful ways. But he says, in every place that I've landed, I've only found one person. And the one person is always self-oriented. They're always oriented around their own self-interest, whether it's greed or whether it's food or they're planting for themselves. Whatever they're doing, it always seems to be motivated by this sense of self-interest. 
It reminded me of the woman, the story that some of you remember. Some of you haven't heard it, so I'm going to tell it again. The, the woman that was stranded on an island. She'd been there for almost a year or so. When people found her, she was there. She had three huts on the island. And these people that rescued her said, well, I thought you were all by yourself. She said, I am. They said, well, what are, what are the three huts? And she said, well, the one is right. That's where I stay. That's where I sleep. It's my shelter. Well, what are the other two? She said, well, that one over there, that's my church. That's where I go. That's where I worship. That's where I pray. I have my quiet time, my meditative time. They said, what's the other one? She said, that's the church I used to go. They're awful. Right? How much of our reality is defined by patterns we can't get out of, even if it's all by ourselves? We get stuck in these patterns that we can't see what's redemptive or what's possible. And so there's this beautiful quote that, uh, that is in the book. And at some point, the little prince and the guy, the pilot, are walking around. They start talking. Life itself starts to get animated. Animals talk. Nature itself kind of speaks out. And at one point, the little prince is sitting with the fox and I'm assuming the pilot is there somewhere too, but he says, what makes the desert beautiful is that somewhere it hides a well. That's a statement of faith. That's not simply a statement of belief. It's really a statement of faith. Somewhere in the midst of all this chaos, somewhere what is really beautiful is that there's a well hidden in the midst of all this. I mean, do you, do you actually think that yourself? In the midst of where we find ourselves today in this culture, in this divisive reality we find ourselves in, this political up and down, um, I mean, the way in which life seems to be messing with our comfort or with what we think is right, do you really think there's a well out there somewhere <laughs> buried in the midst of all this? In the person that you found yourself disagreeing with or that you just refuse to talk to? Or the folks you see somewhere out in public and they just create this anxiety around you because of their look or because of how they're acting and you think, I got nothing to say. Is there really possibly a well in the midst of all that? The teacher in Ecclesiastes in our first text didn't think so, right? He's sitting there asking these existential questions 2,400 years ago and he's saying, what's the whole point of all this? I was even a king and what's the point of this? I got all of this stuff. I earned all of this stuff. I achieved all this stuff. I got to give it up. Somebody else is going to get it. Don't even know what will happen. To What's the point of all of that? I amassed all of this, and it's pointless. Um, if you listen to the first song, when the band was practicing that first song by Dawes, uh, when, when My Time Comes, it occurred to me, you could be reading this text and listening to that song at the same time, and they're both asking the same questions. Isn't that interesting? It's a human ex existential reality that sometimes we get caught in these questions of, what's the point? What's the purpose? What was it all for? Now, not always, because a lot of us, you know, live in a fairly privileged and a fairly comfortable reality. We haven't had to deal with too much uh, dis disappointment or too much brokenness or too much uh, breaks in our, in our comfort, our reality. But there's this great line that he has where he says, you can judge all the world of the on the sparkle that you think it lacks. You can stare into the abyss, but it's staring right back. You can judge the world by the sparkle you think it lacks. You ever have that feeling? You ever find yourself thinking there's no sparkle there? There's no hope there. There's no possibility there. And yet here's this story, the little prince, that finally they realize, you know what I've learned from hanging around with you as opposed to hanging around with all those other planets that I hung around with? It seems like maybe you and I can believe this. There's a well out here in this desert somewhere. The prophetic passage of Isaiah echoes this. 
Isaiah was a prophet. It's interesting when the Midrash talks about Isaiah, they said this. Isaiah was walking up and down in his study, and he heard God say, who shall I send? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. We're familiar with that. Thereupon God said to him, my children are a pain. They're troublesome. They're sensitive. If you're ready to be insulted and even beaten by them, then go ahead. You can accept my message. If not, you'd be better to renounce it. Do you get, do you get what that's saying, right? How can you speak hope into the world we are in when there's basically two choices? You're either this way or that way. How can you speak hope that says, oh, you're all wrong, we're all wrong, there's something else. There's a well here in the middle of all this. There's a river that runs through all of this. Not everybody can see it. Not everybody knows it's there. I've been fortunate and blessed enough to participate in that river, to experience a little bit of that love that grounds us all, that runs through life, that surprises me at times when I least expect it. It's got to be elsewhere too, even in you. I mean, that's a statement of faith, right? That's a statement that says, if you're willing to put up with the naysayers and the folks that don't like the fact that you're messing with whatever their comfort zone is, left or right or wherever, then you're willing to say that and to be present to it. So Jesus, just to show how to do this, he goes through Samaria on the way back to Jerusalem with his disciples towards the end of the Gospel of John. And as we know, it's written about 100 years after Jesus' life, so it's written for the community trying to understand itself now in relationship to the scattered communities, to the differences of opinions, to the tensions that exist. And he writes this, and he says, here is a story of Jesus who goes to Samaria, the place where you're not supposed to be. Those folks are marginalized. They're bad. They don't fit. They're wrong. And they know it, too. They think we're wrong because we've told them they're wrong. And Jesus goes right into the community. He's taking a shortcut right to Jerusalem through forbidden land and then sits down at a well and starts talking to a woman, something else she just wouldn't have done, right? The disciples are probably there somewhere nearby watching this as he engages the Samaritan woman in this conversation around well water. She's there to get water. He sits down. She's a, he's a rabbi, but he's clearly Jewish. And she says, what do you want me to draw water to, for you for? I can't do that. This is my well. This is the well my people established. It's Jacob's well. And she lists all of these things that define her story and her tribe's story. And Jesus is supposed to be his story, the Jewish story, the enemy's story. And Jesus says something else. He says, if you knew who I was and the water I have to offer, which is living water, then you'd be asking me for a drink. Now, I often think when I was in that fundamentalist state that I used to think what that meant was um, we were talking about eternal life. You know, if you turn to Jesus and accept him, then you can get that living water, which is eternal life, which comes after you die and all that kind of stuff. And maybe God blesses you along the way because you're trying to be a good Christian. Over time, I've realized that doesn't change anything, does it? It really doesn't change the world. What changes the world is to recognize that what Jesus was offering and what that story suggests is this well that runs through all of us, this river of life that runs through all of us that we're all grounded in, that we are invited then to offer one another. I'm not even sure if you've, if you've had your own drink from it. <laughs> you know, There are times when I wonder if I've forgotten how to find it. But I'd like to suggest that most of us are more like this woman at the well. We're going along with our normal narratives. We have our routines. We have our stories. We have our structures and our realities, the myths that we kind of guide our life by. 
Very few of us have challenged those over the years, and things go along pretty good until something tragic happens or something difficult happens, and we have to adjust it a little bit. And maybe if it shakes up, uh, us up enough, then we find ourselves like the little prince and the pilot in the middle of the desert, and we're going like, this was not my plan. Or the woman at the well that says, you were not my plan. You're not supposed to be here. And now how do you put it together? The heroic journey, the heroic myth that we've talked about, is really about conquering that moment, about acquiring and controlling that moment. The straight-up heroic journey is about sort of conquering that moment, working your way through, powering through it in some way or other, and then returning back a better person or a bigger person or a wealthier person. But the, the journey of the heroine, which again, it's not about women and men, it's about the feminine and the masculine. But the journey of the feminine, of the heroine, says this is where you need to be present. This is where you need to start looking deeper to put together pieces that you didn't know were there. And in doing so, you create a more connective reality. The challenge, I think, for us is to move past the ease with which our society thinks in terms of this or that, in terms of them or us, in terms of, of reacting to things. In fact, it's, it's so easy for us to react. Think of how many times you reacted this week to something, anything. Something small on the freeway, something small at a store, something you read on Facebook that just kind of made you anxious. Something we read about someone getting their uppance, their comeuppance because they sued this other group for, for something they did which was clearly wrong. But then you think, wait a minute, are they drawn from the well or are they reacting to the story? The challenge is to find a way to help others as well as ourselves draw from the well that connects us all in a restorative practice. And that is really hard. I mean, it's really hard to do because we know what's right and we know what's wrong. But um, finding that place out behind right and wrong where there's that river that joins us all. Here's what Bell Hooks says. I am often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little practice of love within the context of community. The danger that I think we face when we're trying to better ourselves, even with our spiritual practice, even with our meditation that betters ourselves, even with our yoga practice, which I love my yoga practice, but all of those things don't really point us to how do we unpack how do we undo the wall? How do we unpack the garbage or the, or the stuff that we bring to our meetings with one another so that we can meet more vulnerably and honestly and both discover the well that's present? This next slide, one of my favorites. See, I love believers and atheists debating with each other. You know, it's so much fun to, to look at the debate going back and forth and you realize you're both talking about the wrong thing. Because while you're both talking about your, your separate position, you're both resting on something larger. Reality itself. Mystery itself. The thing that connects us all, whatever that may be. You might want to call it God. You might want to call it uh, empiricism. You might want to call it materialism, the way science describes everything as it is. It doesn't really matter. We are still all interconnected. This whole facade of us versus them is just that. It's a false narrative. Can you see that? I mean, don't, don't look at me if I'm just not making any sense. Go, uh-uh, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, if you see what I'm, if it makes sense to you, then you can nod. If you disagree, you can shake your head. I don't care, but just I need to know. Is it, I don't want to bore you to tears and not make any sense. But this is the challenge, I think, for myself. Every time I listen to someone sharing their story or about their anger or their resentment or how they reacted to something, I want to say, yeah, but that's not necessarily helpful either. How do we find a way to be present to others that can invite them into this well of life? And I think that, third, that last song that we heard invites us to do something. Because essentially what Jesus was saying to the woman at the well was he was inviting her to think about how are you going to invest in others? How are you going to drink from this well not because it's going to give you something and you can go on off now, you've got your stuff. You don't need to worry about anything. He was inviting them into the same community that God was inviting Isaiah, which was to say, they're not necessarily going to like you. Because they don't necessarily get it. But if you get it deeply enough, they'll start looking at what's pointing to the moon and start going, there must be something exciting there. There must be something else I'm not seeing. When it's all about us, it starts to get really small. Here's what George Orwell wrote. I like this quote. It's not saying so much staying alive, it's staying human that's important. What counts is that we don't betray each other. So how do we invite a practice into this, right? A daily practice, because I keep talking about this. You know, I go home, my wife gets frustrated, Linda gets frustrated, her daily practice is to paint a wall. I literally come home, there's a new wall color. I was like, who made you mad? <laughs> what got frustrating to you? This morning I woke up and there were three, seriously, three patches of new color on the wall behind the bed. I'm like, when did you do that? Was that in the middle, you know? It's just I don't notice it anymore. She's just always doing things. How do we respond to the things that create tension in us? Yeah, we need to find places that sometimes we can breathe. We can take a break and breathe. But then we need to remember, I got to go back to the well. I got to go back to that spot. I got to go back to drill to open up to help others see what's present there. How do I help them do that? And here's what Jesus did. And I titled this Water, Water, Everywhere from the Ancient Mariner. Why rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Y'all remember that? Water, water, everywhere. Not a drop to drink or nor a drop to drink. <laughs> But the way that Jesus was saying it was saying, no, there's water, water is everywhere. It really is. It's everywhere. But you just have to tap into it. You have to be willing to tap into it. And how do you do that? Well, this last story was so wonderful in John. John doesn't have the Eucharist story. Did you know that? I'd really forgotten that. He doesn't have that same ritualized Eucharist story that's in the other three Gospels. Instead, what is really ritualized is this moment, this important moment, where Jesus takes off his robe, sits down before the meal, and washes everybody's feet. You know that had to take 30 minutes or more. He's washing everybody's feet. They must have been just totally in silence, staring at him, dumbfounded. Then he gets up, puts his robe back on, sits down, and I love what he did. He looks over and he says, did you see what I did? Did you see what I just did? I'm Lord. I'm teacher. You think of me as somebody really special. I just did that. How do we make our world larger? We don't acquiesce. We don't think of ourselves as smaller and unimportant to others. We think of ourselves as part of something wider that others don't always see. And then we take every opportunity we can to question and to think about ourselves. How am I reacting to this? Where am I not seeing my own story that's self-limiting? 
how am I not seeing the wider possibilities because I'm stuck in a story that's not necessarily true? The deeper story is the true one, which is what connects us all. How do you figure that out? You reach out to others. And in the process, we create a patchwork. The ground, I want to think this last image with you as you walk away as we leave after this last song. The magic bean story, I got it all wrong. I was thinking about it. What's the magic beans you carry around in your pocket? I, got, I was thinking about that, right? What are all the special things I carry? What's my special talent? What's my special gift? The ground was magic. The beans were just ready to be done something with. Amen.